Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacatur, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. In this episode, we're talking to Kelly Bruno, the CEO of the National Health Foundation, about tactics her organization has used for employee engagement, retention, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Hey, Trent, how are you? I'm doing well, Julie. It was a uh, it was a nice respite from uh, quarantine to to enjoy the long weekend and honor uh, Memorial Day here in uh, in whatever form we could. So it's uh, I'm I'm doing just fine. You recently had an editorial with a couple other folks in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Yeah, I did. I wrote a piece with Carol Larson, the recently departed CEO of the Packard Foundation, and Mark Friedman, the CEO of Encore.org, where we kind of made the argument that in this era of kind of unconscionable ageism, in my opinion, around this this COVID-19, where we're talking about, you know, sacrificing older people for the benefit of our economy, that we were missing the point. And that as we come back and as we look for uh, opportunity, as we look for making things better in what is undoubtedly a, a rough time for our country, let alone the world, one of the ways to come back and to come back strong was to put older people to work. As, as mentors, as tutors, as community grandparents. They're there, they're ready. They don't need to be set aside. They don't need to be locked away. And while there are obviously health risks at play here, this is a large group of resources, people who are ready to make things right for the next generation. And we as a community and we as a funding world needed to find ways through technology and through innovation to, to bring older people back into the social network, into the fabric for providing opportunities for young people. So, you know, I think right now we're thinking of, of older people as, as weak, as people to be put away, to be hidden so that we all can get about with our, our pool parties. But older folks are obviously not a homogeneous group and they are in many cases ready to provide great leadership. And we as a country need to make sure that we find ways to utilize this, this pool of talent. And I would highly recommend people read it because it's really well done. What's been the response to the editorial? It's been overwhelmingly positive. You know, I actually read a, a piece over the weekend, MIT professors, where they, they literally talked about how we needed to lock away older people in this country that, you know, in kind of just alarmingly ageist and segregating kind of way. It was in Time Magazine of all places. And I think that our approach is resonating with a lot of people who are recognizing that, of course, we want to protect those who are vulnerable, those who are weaker, but there are an awful lot of people out there who can give back, who can do a lot of good. You know, to me personally, the voice of reason in, in the Trump administration right now is Anthony Fauci, who's 79 years old. So it, it's, it's a little silly to say old people should get out of the way when the, the person who may be the, the leading doctor in the country for how to manage this is somebody who we would easily classify as, uh, as elderly. I had not thought of that. And that is, uh, that's great to hear. I'm going to take kind of a right turn on a question for you. So, so hold on. Can you talk about as a funder, what it's like when you're working with an organization that is experiencing a lot of staff turnover and what that does to the relationship? It destroys our relationship at, really? at our at our foundation. Absolutely. I mean, 
you know, organizations that are constantly losing good talent, there is a culture issue at play that I think in the long run gets in the way of what they're trying to do. And we've talked many times on this podcast about, I don't care, really care what your mission is. Everybody has a really good mission and it comes down to execution. It comes down to whether you have good management, whether you have good culture, whether you take care of your people, whether people like coming to work every day, you know, happy, motivated, interested, compassionate, compelled people make the best employees. And if people are constantly updating their resume and looking for another place to go, that is going to be the kind of organization that is not going to get as much done as their peer. And so we, you know, will of course tolerate some movement, but I do find that those organizations that are able to retain their people, keep their people happy, motivate their people, promote their people from within, are the organizations to get the most done. And that's what we're looking for when we're looking for a funding partner. I've noticed a lot of the organizations we've talked to that have been grantees of the Eisner Foundation have had people in place for you know upward of 10 years in some of those positions. I mean, I think stability leads to, to excellence in many cases. Obviously, you don't want people who are stale and no longer aspiring in their jobs, but most people outside the sector don't realize how cutthroat the nonprofit world can be and that if people aren't getting it done, they'll be asked out relatively quickly. And if you're not motivating and retaining your people, there's somebody across the street who's also doing something really cool for their community and they'll be happy to, to steal your employee away. What are some of the things you're hearing about why people change positions? I know what I hear is a lot of these jobs can get draining after a while and it just feels like you give and give and give and to what end? So people do get burned out. I think that's a key point. I think we've made a false choice in the sector, which is we have oftentimes argued that you won't get paid as much if you go work in the nonprofit world, but you'll get the psychic payout of doing great work. But that psychic payout wanes in a while if you overwork people and you underpay people and you don't motivate them and recognize them for what they're doing. So I think people leave when they're asked to do above and beyond for too long and not recognized for that. And then you have to remember that if I've made the choice to work in the nonprofit world, the odds are I'm going to get that great psychic payout at any organization that I work for. Because like I just said, almost every nonprofit is doing something really good. So that's not good enough as an employer. You can't just say, hey, you're getting to do good work here. Because I can do good work across the street for another nonprofit where they might value me and they might protect me and they might promote me. Whatever it takes to make it a, a humane workplace where you feel valued. So I think that we've, we've created this false choice where we're choosing between pay and psychic payout and the good nonprofits recognize that they need to do everything they can to level the field and not overstate the psychic payout part, but they also need to do everything they can to make their employees happy. That's a good transition into what we're talking about today in terms of employee happiness and retention, which we felt was an important topic to talk about during the this time of crisis and pandemic because I, I think the work has gotten much harder. So let, let's introduce our guest here. So Kelly Bruno is the president and CEO of the National Health Foundation, which is a Los Angeles-based nonprofit organization that works with under-resourced California communities to identify and advance solutions that remove barriers and promote health for all. She's going to talk to us about some really intentional stuff with her staff that is specifically around employee happiness and the investments they've made there. 
Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you, Julie and Trent, for having me. So, Kelly, why don't you tell us briefly about the National Health Foundation? You know, it's a big sounding title for a, a big sounding organization. What exactly do you guys do? How big are you? And, and what is your scope in, in terms of operations? National Health Foundation was created in 1973. Its mission, as you mentioned earlier, is to improve the health of under-resourced communities. When research started to show that a person's ability to be healthy was more predicated on their zip code than their genetic code, National Health Foundation started focusing on what we call the social determinants of health. And those four areas that we focus on are food insecurity, education, built environment, and housing. And we utilize three strategies basically to uh, address those four social determinants, which is uh, direct service, research, and community engagement. Uh, our community engagement efforts are really community focused insofar as that we wanna make sure that the community is at the center of everything that we do, recognizing that no one knows what best they need than those that are actually in that community. And so when we utilize and go into these communities, that's the strategy that we use and we call that participatory action research. For our direct services, we're most known for recuperative care, which is programs for individuals experiencing homelessness that have been exited from the hospital and don't have a safe and appropriate place to discharge. And National Health Foundation has three recuperative care programs across Los Angeles and Ventura County, most recently opening up a 92-bed recuperative care as a part of the Project Room Key that we've heard so much about that Los Angeles County is embarking in to get individuals that are experiencing homelessness off the street during this pandemic. NHF has 65 employees, and we're right under a $10 million. So pretty large. Not, not Red Cross large, but, but bigger than your, you know, your average food pantry. Kelly, there's so much stuff in the scope of your work. How are you broken up into departments with those 65 employees? Yes. Yeah, so the way we organize our, our National Health Foundation is we have our community initiatives team, and then we have our recuperative care team. Individuals experiencing homelessness and recuperative care has become such a large focus in Los Angeles with California having more homeless than any state in the country. So recuperative care really has its own side of the organization. But our community initiatives and our community engagement work makes up the other part. So half of the organization is working on the social determinants of health, which is very community-based, and the the other part of it works on recuperative care. Right. The, the majority works on the, the social determinants around food insecurity, built environment, which is, you know, looking at green space in your community, access to fruits and vegetables. And then the other social determinant housing is what we use as when we talk about recuperative care. So thinking specifically around these 65 employees, you mentioned that you had a couple of initiatives that were specifically around employee happiness. So can you describe those for us? I have a leadership team of uh, five. There's five of us, so four plus me. And we really do lead from a team perspective. And it's through that perspective. So I, so I first off want to say these are not all Kelly Bruno ideas. These are National Health Foundation ideas with my leadership team. And we found long ago that in order for us to have the best culture in our organization, we have to trust and have confidence in our employees and let them lead as many of those initiatives as possible. And so we have a very strong interactive communication with our employees. And we use actually a software program called Tiny Pulse. 
And Tiny Pulse is a means by which for us to communicate with our employees anonymously, where we can send emails out to our employees and one question surveys out to our employees to get the pulse of our organization. It also allows those employees to respond to us and to tell us things that they would like to tell us completely anonymously so we don't know who they are, and then we can respond back to them. So it really provides a a continuous platform for our organization. And with the fact that we have four distinct sites, so all 65 employees are not in one location, that communication is imperative. So pre-pandemic, if you will, we would ask questions like, you know, how happy are you working at NHF on a, you know, on a scale of one to 10? How likely would you be to recommend a friend to work here? How happy are you with your direct supervisor? Post-pandemic, we were able to ask things like, what can we do to make your, your stay at home better? How can we best support you during this pandemic? We actually were able to ask, how good did we do in supporting you during this pandemic? And so it allows us to really get a good pulse on how the organization is doing and how our employees are feeling. You know, during this pandemic, uh, so many people really want to feel valued. They want to feel like someone knows that they're there, that we care about them. And so that constant ongoing communication has been a means for us to do that. What's the value in doing that anonymously? Why not just have regular check-ins with regular supervisors to ask these same general types of questions? What do you gain by allowing people to do this without telling you who they are? Sure. Well, as sweet and kind and wonderful as I think I am, I still can be very intimidating to people no matter how hard I try. And other supervisors are the same. We want our employees to be able to tell us everything they want to, and we want to hear them. And so even though we say our door is open and you can always come talk to us, that doesn't mean that that's easy to do. This allows that communication to take place and it allows every employee to have an equal voice and to feel that they can do that without retaliation. And again, as much as I think that that would never happen, that doesn't mean that people haven't had that experience before. They haven't brought that with them. You know, a friend of theirs has had that experience. So we open that completely. It's very safe. It's very secure. We engage back and forth and we never know who they are. It also sends a tremendous message, Trent, that we trust them. We trust them and we value what they say. And they know that we trust them and that they trust us. So this is just an external vendor that provides this platform and you pay some sort of fee to utilize it within your organization? That's exactly right. And it also provides us with dashboards. I'll give you an example. One of our employees had a suggestion that we have shoe covers um, available at the recuperative care sites. And so she was able to put that suggestion in. And then we thought, well, that's a great idea. And we made it happen. And then it triggers, it's called a win. And then we have an organizational win, something that we were able to change because of an employee recommendation and then everybody gets notice of that. It's an app on your phone. It also comes up on Teams. So there's multiple ways to access it. So whenever a new survey comes up, I get like a ping on my computer or on my cell phone that tells me that there's a new question to answer. I know that the shoe cover example is not, you know, mind blowing or earth shattering, but to that individual, it was a big deal. And I don't know that she ever would have said anything if it wasn't because of that. Or maybe she did say something, but somebody forgot, and then she was afraid to say it again, right? And so this allows us to have that equal um, communication ability for every employee. And what do you do at your end 
to ensure that when people make these types of suggestions that something gets done, you know, that they get an answer in, in some way or another. You're not going to fix everything. What do you do with your management team to ensure that there is a process, that everything is addressed in some form or another, and that employees know that that is indeed what's going to happen? Great question. We actually have at our organization, the Culture Club that we have created that is a, is a staff-run group that is made up of representatives from all four of our sites that actually oversee the culture and the activities we do in our organization, but they also oversee tiny polls. So they are responsible for it. So it is employee-run, it is employee-monitored. Leadership gets a update on it once a month from that team, but other than that, it's completely employee-run. It's not just a suggestion box on the wall that you don't check every, you know, six months or whatever as things pile out. No, the culture club is actually dedicated that every employee gets a response within 24 hours. The response could very likely be, thank you for your question. We will get back to you. But they at least right. know that somebody has heard them and seen that. And then if, if the culture club, if it has anything to do with finances or money, then they'll come to leadership with a recommendation. If it's not, then they handle it on their own. Has there been anything that has stumped the culture club? I think what Trent's question was getting at was like, what's the process from there is to make sure that it, things are acted on, but has anything come up that has been like, oh, we don't have a process for this. And then how did you handle it? Well, I would say the, the, the most has been, was it really with COVID? Because when COVID came up, there were suggestions and recommendations in the beginning when we first started using it, it was kind of a place to just complain you know, like, oh, I don't like this and stick it in there no matter what. And, and, and I knew that was going to happen. We knew that was going to happen in the beginning. So one of the changes that we made is that one of the leadership team, which is the chief operating officer, Mia, the culture club meets with her after each of their meetings as an opportunity to present to her anything that they think they need help with or anything where they need resources. So they have constant communication with us. That was missing in the beginning. We gave them all the autonomy but they didn't feel necessarily comfortable coming back to us. And so having Mia available to them after every meeting has helped that. We purposely don't have anybody on leadership as a part of the culture club. And that's purposeful because if we're there again from this, where we started, we intimidate maybe in not meaning to. So that's one way we resolved that. With COVID, we had to go faster. We had to be available more, more quickly. That meant reviewing more quickly. So instead of the, instead of the culture club coming to Mia or to leadership once every two weeks, so they, they meet twice a month, they were able to come to us at any time if something came up. Because as you all know, with COVID, every day is like a month, right? And so you don't want to wait more than 24 hours to get back to somebody if they're feeling anxious or if they're feeling concerned or scared. You need to be able to respond to them ex right away. I just want more examples of things that your employees have suggested. What else has been implemented because of this? Sure. Most recently, there was a recommendation that the employees that are at home, because about two-thirds of our employees are working in the recuperative care sites, right? So they're there every day still through this pandemic. But we have about 20 employees that um, are working from home. So one of the recommendations came through through Tiny Pulse that every employee that's at home get a small stipend so they could purchase the supplies that they need at home to make their home working environment better. 
as opposed to us just assuming they already had everything they need, they recommended that we do the Zoom meetings that we do once a week to make sure everybody can see each other's face. That was, in, that was important to them. Also small things like we now have a Spotify playlist <laughs> from our employees that everybody put music in because they all want to be able to be in contact with each other in a different way. And that Spotify list was that our employee party that we're supposed to have this summer goodness, I hope that we get to have it, was something that completely came from employees. They didn't want to do what we'd done in the past. They wanted something different. And so we actually rented out a space at Universal Studios and allowed all the employees to bring their kids and their extended family they wanted to bring them. So that came from Tiny Pulse. People have had serious questions about benefits, and they've come not to everybody, but anonymously. You know, why is our medical insurance this way? Why do you only contribute this much to your to the 401k? One employee was upset because she felt that we did not allow employees to work from home quickly enough. And it was a great opportunity for us to be able to share with her a little bit of the process that we had to go through in order to get there. But if she had not shared that with us, she would have been upset right? And angry and thought that we had ignored her. And we were able to instead communicate with her that I had to go to the board first. And that took an extra 24 hours. And that she wasn't aware of that process. And then it really calmed the waters there. What else does your culture club take on? Do they do other things? Or are they just reviewing tiny pulse pulses? Tiny pulse pulses. That's great. They know they're responsible for the overall culture of the organization. So they oversee all of our employee engagement. And we actually have an employee engagement calendar. And we have two activities a month that are on that employee engagement calendar. And one of them is an activity that's more virtual because we have four, four sites. And the other one is more of an activity where we give them something. So we had, there was National Not Eat Alone Day. And so we gave every employee permanent utensils, you know, environmentally friendly utensils in a little case. Of course, we've had National Burrito Day. National Burrito Day actually landed during the pandemic. So the Culture Club made sure that every employee, at-home employee and work employee received a burrito during that day. So they're in charge of the, uh, of the overall engagement of the organization the Culture Club is. But Tiny Pulse is probably the most, the largest thing that they're in charge of. Now we also do what's called our JEDI Council. And that is, stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And National Health Foundation takes DEI very seriously. So we have a whole council that oversees all of our JEDI efforts. And that also is employee run. National Health Foundation is 75% minority as far as our employees are concerned. And so having a JEDI council is very important so we can assure that our benefits and our practices are aligned with those that we serve. And so that also is an employee run group that meets every two weeks. That is a different group of employees. So Kelly, I'm curious. I mean, from what I know of you, you're a very serious person and you're working in a very serious field with the most vulnerable populations in the community by, by far. This is not a, a lighthearted kind of thing. And yet you seem to have a interest and a, and a focus in employee happiness, which is often seen as kind of nice, but not necessary. I suspect that you're gonna tell me that that premise is wrong. So I'm curious, why did you decide to invest in employee happiness, because these things cost 
money and they cost time. And what's the return for your organization? So I, I'm a social worker by trade. I'm an MSW. And I know that the best way to make sure that those I serve are happy is to make sure that those that are serving them are happy. So I say I have 65 clients, right? And those are the employees that work there. I feel it is much less expensive to invest in these efforts than it is not to. And I don't think an organization can afford not to. When I hear an organization say that they can't afford DEI efforts or they can't afford employee engagement efforts, I say you can't afford not to do them. And it doesn't have to be expensive. Yes, Tiny Pulse costs, but it's actually very nominal. There are other things that you can do. If you are, if your if your point and your effort is to make employees feel valued by reaching out to them, like for example, for us during COVID, I, of course, I had three teenagers that were in college, so I am a, am an expert in care packages. So I personally made care packages for all 21 employees that were at home and sent them a care package with PPE, hand sanitizer, chocolate, fun things for their kids to do. And that made them feel very much appreciated. But that could have been a note because a note, quite honestly, would have done the exact same thing. A handwritten note from the CEO saying that I'm thinking of you and I appreciate you and value you is just as, is just as valuable as a cookie. You know, So it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. As CEOs, our employees are our number one asset. And if we do not invest in them, we will not be successful. You talked earlier about turnover hugely important, hugely important. And if your employees aren't happy, then they're going to leave. And unless you keep them happy, your organization isn't going to thrive. It's as simple as that. There it is. There's the answer. That's, <laughs> it's it, it, you know, we're done. We wrap it up. We could just, you know, tape the 90 second Kelly Bruno answer on why invest in employee happiness and send it out to every fledgling executive director and they'd be good to go. Thank you for that. But it sounds like also your culture club and your um, diversity committee have some resources at their hand to implement some things. So you, you've given these committees a budget, correct? Oh, absolutely. They have a, a budget in the beginning of the year. It's their budget to do with what they will, and they decide how they want to spend it. That's more for the culture club. They have that budget. For the DEI, for, for, for the JEDI Council, it really depends on what they come up with. And we actually have a Jedi Council strategic plan, like an internal plan that's a part of our overall organizational strategic plan. And it looks at things like our, our benefits. And, you know, I'll give you an example of what, something that happened during COVID uh, that, that, that the Jedi Council came up with. You know, when all this was transpiring and we were trying to keep our employees safe, we offered hazard pay. When we're looking at DEI efforts and we're looking at equity, then what we say is everybody's hazard or risk thereof is equal, right? So that we don't give, we didn't give people hazard pay as a percentage of their salary. We gave everybody the exact same hazard pay, $40 a day, because my hazard is the same as your hazard is the same as your hazard, right? The Jedi Council also let us know that people were having problems with transportation. Some people took the bus, right? A lot of our employees took the bus, something that I might not necessarily think about. So what we immediately did is we gave Uber credits to every single one of our employees because the bus was not a safe place to be. There's too many people. You couldn't social distance. So anybody that didn't have access to a car got $20 each way of an Uber credit to be able to get them to work. 
those things come out of the Jedi Council. They're not necessarily things that I would have thought of or that we would have thought of. Meals. People couldn't get meals. I mean, talking about food insecurity, if you're living in areas like South Los Angeles and there's only three grocery stores within a 10-mile radius, and we already know how difficult that was. So we had our meal provider pre-pack meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and our employees could take those home with them free of charge. That wasn't a problem. They could take that. So little things like that aren't big benefits, but they're, but they impact people and they're important and they're absolutely equity issues, things that I don't have to worry about because of the privilege that I have of where I live, but my, a lot of our employees do. And so those little tweaks made a big difference. So things are coming up. You're being responsive to these committees. It's good to see because I think with a lot of organizations, they will put together either, you know, a diversity committee or a employee retention or happiness or culture committee, and then say, you have to do all of it for free. You know, we're not going to spend any money on it. So how are you budgeting at the beginning of the year to allow for that? Is this coming out of your general operating fund and you just make sure that you're managing it or are you specifically putting together a pool of money or like, how are you anticipating having funds to say yes to all of this stuff? Sure. So we definitely depend on the kindness of strangers. I'm not going to lie about that. But as far as our employee engagement, we have a line item for that in our budget. So it it is a budgeted line item that we increase every single year, but those dollars go up every year. As far as diversity, equity, inclusion, that is one of NHF's six core values. And so it is something that we are committed to spending money on every single year, and we do. What's going to come out of the the Jedi Council and what we're going to focus on loosely follows that, that diversity strategic plan that I spoke of, but there's lots of different ways to get at those things. I really do honestly feel that if you do things for the right reasons, the money will come. And I really sincerely believe that. And it works for me. And we do things for the right reasons. And we are good by our employees. We trust them. We're not afraid of their feedback. And, and it works for us. So I assume that you don't specifically fundraise for these types of programs, Um, assuming that I'm right on that one, which would be once for me. You are asking your board to allocate funds for something um, that isn't necessarily going to a core program. You've articulated beautifully that this makes the core programs possible, but it isn't necessarily a core program. And we all know that when it comes to budgeting time, Boards love to dump things into everything they consider to be non completely essential. So I assume you're measuring these types of things. How are you measuring success when it comes to these types of employee engagement programs other than, I know it works. Sure. So I, I provide my, my board every quarter with five dashboards. And one of those dashboards is employee satisfaction. And we give them actually... The, the results of all those mini surveys that I told you about that go out once a month, we actually have a dashboard for each of those surveys and, we, and, and our, our board gets those surveys. As far as our DEI efforts, that has been something that has been a master plan for about a year and a half. And as we wanted to bring our organization and our board around to diversity, equity, inclusion, we had to do a tremendous amount of education because we needed our board to understand and recognize that our work, when we look at, when we're looking at root causes of the reasons we do what we do, the root cause doesn't stop 
at the lack of, of community resources or the lack of green space. That's not the root cause. The root cause is the institutional racism that our country was built on that's created the environment that we have. And so we were going to go in that direction. We had to really make a huge effort in educating our board in this space. And so it took about a year and a half to do that. Between board meetings, we had outside consultants come in from board source that helped us with this. And we didn't look at it as an all or nothing. We look at it as a journey, a journey that we moved towards and we moved along. And it's been about a year and a half, but we've been extremely successful. But it wasn't something, Trent, that I could just do like this. It was really a master plan of me and my leadership team saying, this is where we need to get. This is how long it's going to take. And this is the training we have to give our board as we do it. That's great. So we have, we have a couple battle scars, I'm not going to lie, but, but for the most part, we've survived. Kelly, do you have advice for other organizations who might be smaller or just getting started in thinking about employee retention, diversity, equity, inclusion, and just thinking through these? Sure. So when it comes to employee satisfaction, I, I would say that having confidence and being humble as a leader and allowing people to be able to give you feedback and um, listening to that feedback is most important. And something like Tiny Pulse is a great way to do it. If you can't do it that way, you could do something internally that's anonymous. But I think that's very important. When it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion work, I believe it really depends on where your board is, what your board looks like, and the makeup of your board as to where you start. Our beginnings of doing real, honest diversity, equity, inclusion work came from me and every white leader in my organization reading a book called White Fragility. And we read that book as a group and we had a support group around that book. And that is where it started. And then me as a white leader, which is not lost on me, being able to articulate the privilege that I have and why I'm sitting where I'm sitting and making a commitment to my staff and to my team to further educate myself. So last year and continuing this year, I made a commitment to my entire team that I would read one book a month that educated me further on a disadvantaged community, whether that be LBGTQ, whether that be the Latino community, Latinx community, and that I would further my education in that space so that I could continue to grow with them. And so I feel, and what I hear oftentimes, particularly as we know, like 90% of CEOs of nonprofits are white, yet we're working with these disadvantaged communities and under-resourced communities. The best thing we can do is set that example. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard, I don't have the money to do this. It does not cost me anything to educate myself. And it shows such a tremendous commitment to my team to say, you are worth enough for me to educate myself. There's no money that can pay for that. And that really starts it. So for any small nonprofit, I would say that's exactly where I would start is showing them that you are committed as a leader and that you're committed to educating yourself and, and improving yourself. It wasn't the answer I expected, but that was terrific. <laughs> what? Do you want to say the answer you expected? Yes. What did you expect? <laughs> oh, no. I'm not hijacking Kelly's interview. It's a great answer. And I, I you know, that. I'm all in. I've read, like I said, White Fragility is where I started. I read How to Be an Anti-Racist, 
which is a wonderful book. I've read The Alternative. I read Born on Third Base. I've read The, the Queer History of America. I've, I, like I said, it was one book, a uh, one book a month that I read last year, and I've only read I've only read two this year, so I'm a little behind. I should say we also created a DEI library at all four of our. Uh, sites and every single book that anyone's read about DEI or a different population, we've we've bought copies of them and we put them in the DEI library so employees can check them out and read them. And then we write the name of who's read that book on the back uh, cover so we can engage with other employees who've read the same book. No, and I agree. I mean, I think you made the right point, which is that this doesn't cost anything except effort and an attempt to connect with people to recognize that we're all coming from different footings and different backgrounds and different visions when we come to the same shared attempts to make the world a better place. But we're all carrying something else with us when we come in the room and trying to identify that and, and work with that is, is a noble pursuit. And, and, and as you've said, a necessary pursuit to make your work as effective as possible. This has been terrific. I've really enjoyed it. I sincerely appreciate the opportunity. It's great, Kelly. Keep up the good work. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.